Uh, church, we're going to start right away because we have a lot to cover. So you can flip to Colossians 1, 15 through 23. That's going to be our text today. And while you do, I have a question for you. How big is your God? That is the right answer, but it's still too small. Church, I'll tell you on the outset of this sermon that my one hope today is that you would behold the glory of God. So to do that, normally we like to study a passage uh, by understanding what the text is saying. We want to see how Christ is in view, and then we want to bring it down to our everyday level to see how it impacts our lives. But today, our text deals with some of the highest and deepest language of the entire Bible. And so, I want to humbly challenge you, church, to do something different. Rather than bringing the text down to us, I want you to rise to the level that Paul's speaking at. If you really want to get the most out of what's being said here in this text, then I need your heads in the clouds with Paul. So dream big with me for the next 40 minutes because if we can just catch a glimpse of the glory that Paul is proclaiming here, I think it'll change the way we live our lives and read our Bibles. So let me pray one more time and then we will read the passage. Father, we thank you that you are the powerful, omnipotent God of all things. Lord, that everything is for you, that you are preeminent over all things and we are just finite human beings. We are your creation. And as we come to a text this big, God, I pray that you would help us to comprehend how incredibly glorious you are. Your spirit is the only thing that can do that. And so we pray that you would help us, that you would give special grace to us to understand this. We pray this in your name. Amen. Church, we're going to read 15 through 23 in Colossians 1. And this is the word of God. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So do you hear the scope, church, that Paul is talking here? He's talking big. Uh, Most scholars agree that verses 15 through 20 are actually a poem or a hymn 
Uh, we don't know if Paul created it himself or if the early church created it to kind of capture this theology. Uh, but the structure in the poem, the structure and the repetition in the poem helps us to understand what Paul's emphasizing. So let me give you a breakdown of the structure because that's going to inform how we're going to work through this today. So for starters, you probably noticed the word all and everything is mentioned a ton of times. It's actually mentioned nine times in these short verses, especially the phrase all things several times. So as we read, you get the sense of God's plan. It is grand, it is huge. Jesus' dominion is over everything. And next we get some sentences that have this repeated structure. So let me show you what I'm talking about. In verse 15, it says Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. And this phraseology is then repeated again in verse 18, where Jesus is called the firstborn from the dead. Now, both sections also repeat the same three phrases to describe what this firstborn title means. So, firstborn of creation is described by the phrases in verse 16, by him, through him, for him. And then we get the parallel, exact wording, uh, in the Greek, it's the exact wording. In English, it's slightly different, but you still see it. Um, in verse 19, to describe firstborn of the dead, it says, um, in him, through him, and to himself. In Greek, it's literally in him, through him, and to him in both the verses. So the poem is split, you could say, in these two sections. Firstborn of creation, firstborn of the dead. In other words, creation and recreation. Because we are born into this world and then we are reborn into the spiritual world of which Jesus is the firstborn of both. So that's how we're going to structure this today. If it seems like a lot, it is. So don't worry. We're going to try to fully connect all these points in a bit. I'm just trying to give you a roadmap. So verse 15 we have creation. Verse 18 we have recreation. And then verse 20 through 23 is Paul's comments. And here he switches from talking about Jesus, him, he's looking up to looking down and he's talking to the Colossians and he begins to tell them why this creation and recreation matters. And so that's exactly what we're going to do today. We're going to study it in three sections. Um, if you're taking notes, you can write this down. Three headings, creation, recreation, and the implication. Creation, recreation, implication. So let's begin with creation. Two weeks ago, Paul ended in verse 13 and 14 saying, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. The implied question here is, who is that beloved son? And that's what Paul's gonna answer here. And we get two titles in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God and he is the firstborn of all creation. These titles are what 16 and 17 are going to explain, but let's camp here on the titles for a minute. So the first title, The Image of the Invisible God, maybe that brings back John's gospel to, to your mind. You may remember what he says in the prologue in, verse one, in chapter one, verse 18. He says, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So in other words, if you want to know what God looks like, the creator God, look at Jesus. He is the perfect image. And what's so profound about this title is that 
humans were made to be image bearers of God. And yet we failed at that. But where we failed, Jesus succeeded. He truly is the perfect image of God. And more than that, though, he is the very template which with Adam was created after. He's not just the fulfillment of the image. He is the very image of God, not just in form, but in essence. He is God himself. So what does this creator God look like? Look at Jesus. The next title Paul gives us is firstborn of all creation. This title proclaims the rank of Jesus. As firstborn, he's not literally created first. That's what a lot of people like to think. That's the major heresies of the church, Arianism, Jehovah's Witnesses, think that, stuff like that. But if you read the rest of the chapter, the text is really clear. Jesus is not created. Rather, the term firstborn is meant to refer to stature. So he is the first in time, and he is the first in authority. And just as a firstborn in a family would have the right to the inheritance, so Jesus has the right to the entire creation. It's his. So we could spend all day here. I don't want us to get caught in the weeds. Remember I said I want your heads in the clouds, so let's zoom out for a second from these titles. Look at the scope at which Paul's talking. And I want us just to think about three major points that we get from this section as Jesus firstborn of creation. So the first thing we learn is that Jesus created everything. That seems fairly obvious. <laughs> God creates everything, right? But how often do we actually think about Jesus as creator? We think about the Father as creator, but what about Jesus, who here it says all things were created by him in verse 16. We focus so much on the humanity of Jesus, but do we ever focus on him as creator? When I think about it, it's just, it boggles the mind. Who fashioned the earth? Whose creativity was responsible for all the creatures that live in the sea? Who made the universe so huge that humans can't find the end of it? Who spun Saturn's rings? Who bound the laws of physics? Who invented taste and music and the feeling of cool air on your face? That was all done by the same man who wandered around Israel teaching and preaching the gospel. Jesus is the creator of all things. And church, when I think about it, it gives me a whole new perspective on even reading Jesus in the Gospels, like the Jesus we see presented in the Gospels. Think about your favorite Gospel story and think about how him as the preeminent God of the universe changes your perspective of that. Like the, the story I think of is in Luke 8, uh, there's a woman and she's been bleeding for 12 years. She's been outside of the city and basically she, she knows Jesus can heal her and so she makes her way through the crowd just to touch his robe. And he's being pressed on all sides by these people. And she touches his robe and he stops and he says, who touched me? Like the creator of the universe stops to look at this woman and say, who, who touched me? And he looks at her and he says, your faith has made you well. 
Like every story in the Gospels changes when we realize that Jesus, creator of all, is the one who came to be a human to interact with us. And I think maybe it's hard for us to think about that because we think of Jesus' humanity so much. But how much greater is every tender moment, is every emotion, every piece of his humanity when we really see him for the creator that he is? So we learn that all things are created by him. The world and everything is his handiwork. The second thing we learn, church, is everything is for Jesus. So look to the end of verse 16. It says, all things were created through him and for him. That's a purpose statement for creation. Everything is for Jesus. Why did he make everything? Why is creation in existence? It's for himself. It's for his own good pleasure. And when I think about the world, that makes sense. Because the world is an interesting place. Like who can look out at the ocean and not wonder like what is in there? Like I want to see it. I want to I know what's in there. Like did it have to be that way? If there was an existence, did it have to be interesting? What makes it interesting? I think it's because it was created that way. What makes humans want to push the boundaries to explore every island, every mountain peak, even to the moon, to other planets? We're trying to get to Mars now. Like, why do we want to experience every taste? We want to have every experience that this life has to offer. That's what we chase after. It's because the world is made to be pleasurable to him. It's made interesting because it's for his good pleasure. It bears the markings of his handiwork all over it. More than that, though, we see how the world actually revolves around Jesus. Whether people realize it or not, we are all designed to worship. We worship people, things, pleasures, status, comfort, a job. We have these ideas of things we want, and we obsess over them, and we desire them. That is true of all humans. Why is that the case? I think it's because even in our broken world, we can see that humans were designed to worship something. We were designed to worship God. So everything, everything is made for him. And we can see that. It's a God-centered universe. Third thing that we learn. Jesus sustains everything. Verse 17 says, In him all things hold together. Why do the laws of physics remain constant? Why do the seasons change? Why does the rain fall? The sun rises and it sets. Why is the world not in chaos, but it has a order to it? In a way that we can measure it. In a way that time passes consistently. Crops grow, the world spins, we sleep, we wake, all because Jesus wills it and because he sustains it. Perhaps nowhere do we see how dependent we are on the sustaining God of the universe than in Psalm 104. So let me read you uh, several verses from there. 
verse 27 through 32, the author has just described the living things on the earth, including man, and he says this, these all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they're filled with good things. When you hide your face, they're dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the ground. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works, who looks on the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. The psalmist describes God as the sustaining presence in all things. Church, do you know how wonderful that truth is for you? Even the breath in your lungs is sustained by God. Your heart beats because God wills it so. Like I worry about so many things in my life. How will I manage all the responsibilities I have? What's going to happen with COVID? What's going on with the country? Like what if something happens to Maddie? That worries me all the time. And even stupid things like this week, I was like, I got a pain in my calf. Do I have a blood clot? <laughs> you know, I'm 27 and it can still happen. But, <laughs> but I worry about all kinds of stuff. But I don't have to. The Lord sustains it all, church. Psalm 119, 89 through 91 says this, and hear how firm, how steadfast this is. He says, forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You've established the earth and it stands fast. By your appointment they stand this day for all things are your servants. The world is fixed, church. And it stands because Jesus has appointed it such and he is faithful. So whatever weight you're carrying, whatever plate you're spinning, whatever anxieties you are wearing, trust in Jesus who holds all things together. Nothing happens, nothing lives or dies, nothing rises or falls without his say-so. And he is faithful. As we consider these things, Jesus, Lord of creation, firstborn whom all things are created through and for, in whom all things hold together, I pray that it would change the way you view the world, the way you live in it. But church, it gets better than this. So let's look at the next section, verses 18 through 20, as we consider recreation. So, as I said, Earlier, verses 18 through 20 follow the same structure as 15 through 17. Paul said Jesus was firstborn of creation, and that means three things to Paul. All things are made by him, through him, and for him. That's what we just talked about. Now in verse 18, Paul says Jesus is firstborn of the dead. And we get the same structure in verse 19, the same words. In him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him, to reconcile to himself all things. So the scope is the same. The parallels are purposeful because what Paul is picking up here is that Jesus, who is the Lord of this old creation, is now remaking things. So we have creation and recreation. 
Now maybe this is still a little bit confusing, so let me try to explain more. Paul says Jesus is the firstborn of the dead. This refers to Jesus' resurrection. Jesus was the first among all to come back from the dead, and we know that was Jesus' resurrection. He has conquered sin and death, and he is ushering in a new creation. Sin and death were the two enemies that marred the old creation, but now he is inaugurating this new creation, an imperishable one, a recreation, you might say. So what do these verses then tell us about this recreated new world that he is making? Once again, for sake of time, I'm only going to pick out three things. Um, This is not exhaustive. The first one is that Jesus is preeminent in his new creation. Preeminent is one of those words that you know what it means, but you still got to Google search it because you just really want to make sure. (laughs) It means to be supreme, to be first in all things, to surpass all others. So Jesus is now first and foremost in this new creation because he's experienced every human trial, even death, and he's conquered over it. So the new creation is coming to make Jesus king, not just in right, but in reality. In this new creation, Jesus is truly supreme, truly worthy, truly glorious, because he has not just created everything, but he's redeeming it. And as such, new creation then, finally redeemed, responds to Jesus with the worship that he is due. As John saw in the vision, Revelation 5, 9 through 12, I'll read it to you. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. So in this new creation, Jesus fully and finally receives everything that he deserves. He becomes preeminent. And as this vision states, church, new creation will also have a new people. And that leads me to my second point we learn, is that the church is the people of God's new creation. Jesus is the firstborn of the dead, meaning he's ushering in a new people who are going to be resurrected just like him. And Paul identifies this people as the church in verse 18. It starts, Jesus is the head of the body, the church. So this new creation is not just the entire world, but it's a subset. It's those whom God is reconciling to himself, those who identify with Christ's death, who will be raised with him as new creations into his life. So do you see what that means then, church? We are a piece of this new creation. We in this room are the new creation. 
What is the church then other than a beacon of light bursting through a dark world? Jesus says his people will be like the salt of the earth, like the light of the world, like a city on a hill. We are a beacon, a tower of new creation bursting through the old. And we are the people who herald the coming of our God and the day when he will truly reconcile all things to himself. So if you are in Christ, this new creation is the world you actually belong to. His world, free from sin, free from evil and death, free from suffering. And though we experience the pain, the suffering of this old creation now in this life, we are people who have a real hope in the preeminent God, Jesus Christ, Lord of all creation, who is making a new creation for us. So hold fast to that church. This brings me to point three. What is happening in this new creation? What is the hope offered in new creation? The new creation brings reconciliation. Verse 20 says, And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So Jesus is reconciling all things, meaning he's taking this old creation, he's remaking it in right relationship to him, he's restoring every heart, he's repairing every broken relationship, and now he is preeminent, he's bringing the entirety of old creation back into subjection under him, and this is beautiful. When God created the world, he called it very good. And yet that beauty and that harmony was destroyed when sin entered the world through man. Man fell, the earth fell, the old creation was fallen, the earth was subject to futility. And yet now God is reconciling all of it back to himself. Man will again dwell with God, creation will no longer be subject to futility, everything will be in a state of peace. That's what reconciliation means. As Revelation 21, three through five describes this creation, let me read it to you. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Imagine that. A new world with Christ forever. And this is all possible because of the sacrifice through the blood of his cross. So we get the end of this poem. We have this beautiful picture of the old creation and the new creation crashing into each other and the kingdom of God is peeking out of this old creation. The churches around the world then are like these bastions of God's new creation breaking into a fallen world. And what are the implications of that then for us this cosmic, 
monolithic picture, this plan of God, how does that affect the small people of Tempe like us? Finally, we get to implications. Well, it affects two groups differently. And I want to speak to both. First to those who don't claim to follow God and then to those who do. If you're not a Christian here, maybe you've been hearing this sermon and you're wondering, if God is so powerful, if all things are his, if he created everything, he owns everything, everything should worship him, then why do people not worship him? Why does the whole world seem like they're oblivious to this fact? And if that's really true, then why doesn't he just destroy us? I think that's a a proper following question. Well, Paul answers that in verse 21. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. The truth is that all humans are by nature alienated from God, hostile in mind, and that we do evil. We as humanity have universally chosen to reject God in preference to do our own thing. That's why we don't see him as creator. We pay no mind to him as creator. We live our lives as though there's no authority over us. We feel entitled to everything that we have. Meanwhile, we created nothing. We sustain nothing. And we truly have no claim over anything. And the reason why we think this way is because there is rebellion that still lives deep in the heart of every man. This rebellion is something we call sin. It runs so deep in our hearts that we are blinded to this cosmic truth about God. Even though creation bears the markings of God's handiwork everywhere, our sin is so deep that we don't even recognize the evil of our own hearts. We don't even recognize that we're bad people. It's so pervasive that when Jesus came as a man to his own people, they rejected him, they didn't recognize him, and they killed him. The God of all things. And today we still don't recognize Jesus. We still reject him. And we put him to death along with everything else that threatens our sense of autonomy. The truth is we are so blinded deafened and dumb to our own darkness that we can't ever hope to fix ourselves. And That's not just you, that's me. That's every man. That is the natural state of the world. That is why the world lives as though there is no creator. And yet there is hope for us, church. Jesus is making a new creation A new world where sin and death and blindness are no more. Where you can truly see and experience God in his recreated reality for all that he is. And it is offered freely to you. To all who repent of their sin and trust in Christ. You see, the only way into this new creation is through Jesus. When he died on the cross, he took all the sin of man with him and he died as a sacrifice. The preeminent one did that. Indeed, he's the only one who could do that. And that's why Christianity is not just a philosophy 
or another ideology to ponder, but it is the only way to salvation. And why can Christians make such an audacious claim as that? It's because Jesus rose again. He became firstborn from the dead. So if you would but turn to him, you will be raised alongside him into a new creation, recreated, reconciled, and imperishable. If you don't know Jesus today, please don't wait. Please turn from your sin, trust in Christ. Anyone here, including myself, would love to talk to you about that. The next group I want to address are the Christians in the room. How does this cosmic plan impact you? I have two things for you. First, church, take assurance that your salvation is secure. Paul says we were all once alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, but now God has reconciled us. So you, church, are part of the new creation. You are Christ's new people because the blood of his cross. You are so secure before him now that Paul says you are above reproach. And I love the careful words here. If you look at verse 20, by the blood of his cross, emphasizing his work. In verse 22, Paul says, in order to present you, so God has presented you as blameless. You don't present yourself, he did it. And because It doesn't rely on you then, but it so relies on the one who holds all things together. You are secure. My prayer is that you would have hope knowing that the preeminent Lord in all his glory is your assurance. Here's the second thing. Live like the new creation even though you exist in the fallen one. Paul says in verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard in all creation under heaven in which I, Paul, became a minister. This is interesting. It's kind of ironic. We talk about this super assurance we have, and then we get this if phrase, a conditional phrase. You have this assurance if you continue on in this hope. But the way it's worded is that as though it's assumed in Greek that they're going to keep going. And even the context shows us that. Because he says hope here. And if you remember, this is the very same hope that in chapter 1, earlier, Paul commended the church for. The very thing that marked their church was this hope. So this is not meant to be a continue on in this hope. You might not be saved. It's a you have this hope. So live in it. It's meant to be an encouragement to you, church, to hold fast to the gospel. And so like Paul, I want to encourage you. So what does holding fast to this hope mean in light of this passage? I think it means that we should live like the new creation even though we exist in the fallen one. Think about it, church. If we really believe that the world is Christ's and that he is reconciling all things to himself, then we should be the first among all to submit everything we have into subjection under him. Practically, we should carry the gospel with great boldness. 
Because it's not just our church, but all of Tempe that belongs to God. It's all of the world, including the secular university across the street, including your workplaces. They all belong to him. So carrying the gospel into those places is not bringing religion into a place it doesn't belong. It's actually reclaiming what's already God's. So do it with boldness. It also means we should think about our money and our time differently. Our resources devoted to Jesus and this new creation that is coming, that is more sure than the creation we live in now. Or are we still living as though this is all there is? If all things are for him and this new creation is all about him, then that means teaching children on Wednesday and Sunday morning during church is not a chore, it is a privilege. And giving to the offering should not just be another bill. It should be the most important thing we do with our money, the money that has been given to us by God. Our time and our money need to be submitted to him. Finally, we should consider our responsibilities and our roles as given to us by God and begin to live them out in ways that express God's reconciled new creation. So to the elderly in the room, I will be frank, you are nearer to this new creation than many of us younger than you. You've experienced the faithfulness of God over the years in ways that those younger than you are still unsure of. So don't waste a temporary retirement as though you won't have an eternal one with Christ. Invest in the families, the marriages, the singles, the college students who need your support and raise a generation of people to love God. To the parents, I am not a parent and I say this humbly but with great confidence in the word of God. The world will try to get you to raise your children to be the best in school, to have nice manners or to be quote unquote successful. But if Jesus truly is the preeminent Lord of all things, then our primary concern should be raising children who fear the Lord. If there's one thing said about your child when they grow old, let it be that they love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength because you taught them that. Because you modeled that's what was most important. To the married, you have a unique opportunity to love your spouse in a way that represents the faithful, sacrificial love of Christ for his church. In an age where divorce is normalized and commitment is scorned. So show the world how committed our loving God is to his people through the way that you love your spouse. To the unmarried, God has given you the gift of singleness, whether temporary or permanent, you don't know. But that means God has special designs for your time today. So use that time to serve in ways that magnify this new creation, this kingdom of God that he's bringing in. Jesus and Paul were both single and they did more than anyone for the kingdom of God. 
Finally, to the youth, to the college student, your number one responsibility is not to be a student. It's not to get a great job, to get into a good college, to get a degree, or even to be comfortable, or to have a good life. Though that's what everybody will tell you. While those things aren't inherently wrong, they are temporary and they are passing away with the old creation. So live today first for God. You have more disposable time in your life right now than anyone else. So choose to live for Christ today and let God's vision be the vision for your life because it is so much better than anything else that you could imagine for yourself. And finally, even to the children in the room, if there are any, obey your parents and submit to them just as Jesus submitted to the Father. Your parents want the best for you even often when that seems hard. But Jesus listened to God even when it was hard because he knew God loved him. So listen to your parents knowing that they love you. Church, we are the new creation. So let's live like it. Live as people who actually hold fast to this hope, knowing that even though we live in a broken world, our God is reconciling all things to himself by the blood of his cross. Let's pray. Father, you are the preeminent God of all things. And as we consider this grand plan, this incredible mercy, the great power that you have, God, we just pray that our lives would be totally and completely submitted to you. And we are just people. We try our best, but we make mistakes. And so we pray that by your spirit, you would help us. God, help us to see how glorious your plan is and to live as though it is true. Pray this in your name. Amen.